Well, take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20, going back to the Ten Commandments, and we're on number seven tonight. It's hard to believe we're already on number seven. It seems like we just started here, but uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. I want to begin by reading for you a true story. He was a highly motivated, very talented man who became very successful at a young age. Through a series of unexpected events, this wonder boy had been transferred to a big city where he landed a prestigious job as the personal assistant to a wealthy, high-ranking public official. Because of his diligence and integrity, he quickly earned his boss's total trust to the point that his boss gave him complete control over everything he owned. Under his skillful care, his boss's businesses and investments flourished, and so consequently his boss paid no attention to anything this youthful genius did. However, the same cannot be said about his wife. You see, not only was this young man smart, he was also good-looking, and his boss's wife, who was good-looking in her own right, was attracted to his handsome appearance, and she sought to seduce him into having an affair with her. Her husband may have been too busy or too insensitive to cultivate an intimate relationship with her, which left her feeling unloved, uncared for, or maybe she was just plain bored with the monotony of their lavish lifestyle. Well, whatever the cause, she was desperate for some attention and desirous for some action. And so one day, while her husband was away on business, she approached his young aide and invited him to go to bed with her, but he refused. But she wasn't about to take no for an answer. Day after day after day, this unfaithful wife flagrantly flaunted her beauty and brazenly begged him to sleep with her, doing everything she could to think of how to wear him down, his integrity, and crack his loyalty to her husband. But he would simply ignore her and intentionally avoid her. I'm sure she couldn't understand why a guy in this powerful position, not to mention his sexual prime, wasn't enticed by her relentless sexual advances. Surely he too must have been lonely living in a strange city far away from the accountability of family and friends. The fact that he enjoyed free reign of the entire household meant that it wouldn't have been very hard for him to get away with pretty much anything he wanted, including a secret romance with his boss's wife. It would have been very easy for anyone in his situation to be tempted to rationalize his actions with thoughts like, who would know or who would mind? But this godly young man knew someone who would know and someone who would mind. And that someone is God. And that's why Joseph said this, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he's put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? I love the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And it is so 
refreshing. It's a, really a breath of fresh air for us who, who, who find ourselves being smothered in, in, in what we have come to know as a sex-crazed, sex-saturated society where, where the stifling stench of infidelity just permeates virtually everything that we see and hear. I mean, this ancient account in Genesis 39 reads like a script from a modern soap opera or, or an episode of Desperate Housewives, but with a surprise ending. In Joseph's story, the original Desperate Housewife, as like I like to call Potiphar's wife, gets snubbed because Joseph realized that she was more than just a body to satisfy his sexual pleasures. She was Potiphar's wife. And to sleep with another man's wife is wrong because adultery is an evil sin against God. And even if Potiphar never knew, God would know. And Joseph chose to honor God by honoring his boss's marriage. When's the last time you saw that scenario portrayed on a sitcom or in a movie? I mean, when's the last time you saw marriage being honored rather than being undermined, even mocked in today's media? I mean, rarely is faithfulness to your marriage vows ever positively portrayed in, 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 in the TV shows that we watch or the movies we go see or the books that we read. Monogamy is typically made fun of. It's portrayed as quaint, but boring. And unrealistic. And adultery, on the other hand, that's portrayed as being romantic and exciting and and fulfilling. There's nothing shameful or sinful about it. And what was unthinkable to Joseph in his day has become acceptable in our day. Adultery is no longer considered a great evil or a shameful and serious sin against God, even in our nation's past. Uh, adultery was considered a serious sin that carried with it shameful stigma. We all probably read Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic book, The Scarlet Letter. Remember that? And they, they, the lady had to wear that A on her chest to show everybody in, this, in the community that she was an adulterer, adulteress. Today, there's, there's nothing disgraceful about committing adultery or what is now commonly referred to as having an affair. We don't even call it adultery anymore. We just talk about affairs, having an affair. And, and, and let's admit it, an, an affair sounds a lot less serious than adultery, doesn't it? I, I appreciate Steve Farrar in his book, Point Man, a book written to challenge men uh, to be the men that God has called us to be. And this is what he says about this concept of having an affair. He says that word has sort of a nice, lighty air ring to it. It certainly isn't a judgmental term like adultery. The word affair is fluffy and non-threatening. When I was a kid, I used to go to a fair. We would have a great time eating cotton candy, riding the Ferris wheel, playing games on the arcade. When you went to the fair, you left all the responsibilities of normal life behind, at least for a few hours. Life was a lot of fun at a fair. Maybe that's why we call adultery an affair. According to recent statistics, over a third of married men will cheat on their wives. Nearly a quarter of all 
married women will cheat on their husbands, and more than 50% of all marriages will be impacted by one of the spouses being unfaithful. That's just the statistics. Married couples who remain faithful to one another are becoming an endangered species. In fact, married couples in general are a dying breed. I've mentioned this before, but in just recent years, uh, the, the number of couples living together uh, was greater in the U.S. than couples who were married. That just happened a few years ago. And, and in order to avoid the commitment and the complications of marriage, the majority of couples are today are choosing to just live together and engage in casual sex rather than committed sex in the confines of marriage. And I think it's safe to say that, that the one commandment that's most disregarded by contemporary culture is the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Not only is God's command against adultery not taken seriously, it's typically considered a joking matter, something to laugh about. I was shocked when I found out that Desperate Housewives won the Emmy Award for a comedy series, a comedy series. Hollywood is so glamorized and and glorified adultery that we are no longer grieved by it. I mean, it doesn't mean anything anymore when the President of the United States can commit adultery in the Oval Office and, and he becomes the darling of his political party and then the next thing you know, his wife is running for President. Or about to, maybe. You know that's going to happen. That's just the world that we live in. How does that happen? Adultery has become the norm. It's a way of life in the Western world. You can tell that by what we wear, by what we watch, where we go, what we read. I, don't, I know I don't have to tell you this. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it in the news as, as I have, but this Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon is, is truly um, illustrative of where our society is at. How can a book like Fifty Shades of Grey be the fastest-selling paperback in history? It just shows where our culture's at and what, what we crave and what we want to be thinking about and, and reading about and doing. One man said this, adultery is the reigning sin of the times. You know who that man was? Thomas Watson, the Puritan, back in the 1600s. He said that adultery is the reigning sin of the times. You thought that was somebody that said that today, right? The same holds true for today. In fact, Watson wrote about a man and woman from London who committed adultery on the Lord's Day and were instantly struck dead with fire from heaven. Now, I don't know if he made that up. Watson was quite uh, quite a, um, a genius when it came to illustrations and applications. I'm not sure what he meant by that, but he said this, if all who are now guilty of this sin were to be punished in this manner, it would rain fire again as on Sodom. In other words, everybody that was out there committing adultery, if God judged us like he did Sodom, it would just the fire would be falling down. Turn over to Hebrews, the New Testament, Hebrews 13.4, and this is a key verse in our discussion tonight regarding 
adultery and not committing adultery. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. The writer of Hebrews says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and what? Adulterers, God will judge. Now, to understand this verse, along with the seventh commandment back in Exodus, we need to go back to the very beginning to talk about marriage, when it says marriage is to be held in honor among all. So before you get to the marriage bed, right, you need to talk about marriage. And so the Bible says that God designed marriage for his glory and for the enjoyment of his creatures. In Genesis chapter 2, you know how Moses recorded that God, uh, at the beginning of time, performed the first marriage ceremony in the Garden of Eden. After creating Adam in his own image, he said, it is not good for a man to be alone. And all the men said, amen. It's not good for a man to be alone. So he formed Eve from one of Adam's ribs to be his perfect complement. And he brought her to Adam and said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That was God's way of saying that marriage is to be one man, one woman, united together for life. And he provided a wonderful way for a husband and wife to physically seal this inseparable union of heart, mind, soul, and body. And we know that as sexual intercourse. And God designed that intimacy, this this, this, uh, uh, beautiful, uh, pure expression of love and commitment to be shared between a husband and wife. You've heard me say this before, that sex is God's wedding present. That's to be only opened by the husband and wife on their wedding night, and after that to be never shared with anybody but each other. And so sex outside of marriage is simply sin. Premarital sex, sex before you're married, or extramarital sex, sex while you're married with someone other than your spouse. And and all sexual sin has serious consequences. When we take God's precious, powerful gift of sex that was intended for the mutual enjoyment of a husband and wife within the confines of a committed lifelong relationship, and we defile it, we pervert it, we will experience God's judgment. And anyone who engages in any kind of sexual activity with anyone other than their spouse violates the purity and exclusivity of the marriage relationship and will suffer the consequences. Go back to the Old Testament now. To Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 20, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and here God is outlining uh, the specifics of the law. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, he says this, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If there is a man who lies with his father's wife, he's uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. 
If there is a man who lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They've committed incest. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there is a man who marries a woman and her mother, i.e. at the same time, the point is, it is immorality. Both he and they shall be burned with fire so that there will be no immorality in your midst. If there is a man who lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death. You shall also kill the animal. If there is a woman who approaches any animal to mate with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They surely shall be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Now, hopefully, you read that, we read that, and just your sensibilities are like, that's nasty. That's gross. What are we talking about here? We're talking about adultery, all the way from adultery to bestiality and everything in between. And and the point is, those were all capital offenses. Those were all crimes worthy of death. And, And those were the common sexual practices of the pagan nations surrounding Israel. And again, God wanted them to be set apart, wanted them to be different. And he wants us to be set apart from the sexual perversion in our world today. Turn back to the New Testament. We're flipping back and forth. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Now God is speaking not to the nation of Israel, he's speaking to the church specifically through Paul, speaking to the church in Thessalonica. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And within that term, sexual immorality, you say, well, what, is that? what does that mean? What's sexual immorality? Well, it's everything. It includes any, everything and anything that violates God's design for sex which was everything we just read about in Leviticus chapter 20. The word there for sexual morality in, in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is the word porneia. You know what that means, where we get our English word pornography, right? And I would just maybe pause here for a moment before we go on and read what Paul says next to just say this, that the, I think that, in my opinion, the greatest attack on God's gift of sex in the 21st century is the internet. The the internet is the most powerful purveyor of pornography in the history of the world. I read a a shocking statistic uh, a number of years ago that in the United States, pornography, we know it's a billion dollar business, but it's more lucrative than the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. That's how much money is to be made in the internet porn industry. And, and you may have heard it said before, but I think internet pornography thrives off of the three A's. What are they? Accessibility, affordability, and an anonymity. Accessibility, affordability, anonymity. The point is this, that you can download pornography in the privacy of your own home or your own office without ever having to risk the embarrassment of going to the corner liquor store or going to the adult video store like you used to in the olden days, right? In fact, you could pull out your, your smartphone right now and, and, and download it right here. That's how easy it is. 
crazy. And so through the internet, Satan has enslaved millions of men and women in sexual idolatry, which is ultimately self-idolatry. C.S. Lewis, uh, as you know, had a brilliant mind, and uh, he wrote an article at one point called An Affair of the Mind, where he addressed this idea of sexual fantasy, uh, which I think you could apply to pornography. And he said this, he said, sexual fantasy or pornography is a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against any man ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attributes which no real woman can rival. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. It's self-worship is what it is. And so Paul says very clearly, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual morality. That each of you, verse 4, know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. In other words, learn how to control your body, learn how to have self-control. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, who are running all over the place doing whatever they want, whenever they want, with whoever they want. That no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. In other words, don't take something that doesn't belong to you. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. In other words, listen, God will punish you if you don't abstain from sexual morality. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification Verse 8, I love this, so he rejects this as not rejecting man. In other words, hey, if you're having a hard time with this, Thessalonians, don't get mad at me. Okay, you're not rejecting me, you're rejecting God, the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I love that, and it's easy to maybe just quickly read that last phrase and miss, I think, Paul's point or the implication there. He's talking about our sanctification Three times he mentions the word sanctification, 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 which we know means to be what? Holy. And so how is this sanctification or this holiness possible only through who? The Holy Spirit. This is the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I'm not just telling you to abstain from sexual morality. I'm also providing you the means to do that, and that's the Holy Spirit who lives within you. And in the same, at the same time, you're feeling like giving in to temptation uh, to, to sin sexually, right? The, the Spirit of God is wanting you to yield to Him. And so you have a choice to make. Are you going to yield to your flesh or are you going to yield to the Spirit? And it's the Holy Spirit who's there to help us. Speaking of the Holy Spirit and, and sexual sin, turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and I know you're aware that they had a very sordid background, they lived very immoral lives uh, before they came to Christ. Um, the word Corinth or Corinthianize was, was, a, was a term that, that they came up with or they coined to talk about basically all sorts of sexual sin. What was to Corinthianize? That's just the 
kind of shows you the kind of culture that these people grew up in and got saved out of. It was this very immoral uh, culture. So notice what he says in First Corinthians six fifteen. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the, the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now we know that all sin is sin, but the implication here of 1 Corinthians 6 is that there's something unique about sexual sin. You say, well, what is it? Why is, why is it almost set apart here? Why does Paul kind of put it in its own category here? And I think it's very simple because the physical union between a husband and wife represents the faithful love and commitment shared in the marriage relationship. And God intended marriage to be a picture of the relationship he established between Christ and the church. God ordained Adam and Eve's marriage and every other marriage since then to to beautifully and powerfully reflect the unconditional, sacrificial, everlasting love relationship shared between his son, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church, those for whom he died. And so consequently, when we as Christians are unfaithful to our spouse, we are dishonoring Christ and his church and must deal with the consequences. And that's what Hollywood fails to show us is the painful results of adultery. Typically in those scenarios, everybody gets off scot-free, everybody lives happily ever after, there's no consequences But adultery is terribly destructive. It causes untold pain and misery. And the breaking of the seventh commandment has wreaked havoc on countless marriages and families and and careers and and ministries. Appreciate Chuck Swindoll. You guys know I love to read him and listen to him and learn a lot from that guy. And he wrote this in in a book of his years ago. He said, for those flirting with the possibility of an affair, let me give you an incomplete list of what you have in store when your immorality is found out. And so he just lists some consequences. Number one, your mate will experience the anguish of betrayal, shame, rejection, heartache, and loneliness. No amount of repentance will soften those blows. Number two, your mate can never again say that you're a model of fidelity. Suspicion will rob her or him of trust. Number three, your escapade will introduce to your life and your mate's life the very real probability of a sexually transmitted disease. Number four, the total devastation your sinful actions will bring to your children is immeasurable. Their growth, innocence, trust, and healthy outlook on life will be severely and permanently damaged. Number five, the heartache you will cause your parents, your family, and your peers is indescribable. 
the embarrassment of facing other Christians who once appreciated you, respected you, and trusted you will be overwhelming. If you're engaged in the Lord's work, you will suffer the immediate loss of your job and the support of those whom you worked. The dark shadow will accompany you everywhere and forever. Forgiveness won't erase it. Your fall will give others license to do the same. The inner peace you enjoyed will be gone. You'll never be able to erase the fall from your or other people's minds. This will remain indelibly etched on your life's record regardless of your later return to your senses. Again, he's not saying you can't be forgiven, right? But he's saying there's certain things that will never be forgotten. The name of Jesus Christ, whom you once honored, will be tarnished, giving the enemies of the faith further reason to sneer and to jeer. The whole point of the seventh commandment is that God wants to spare us from this list of painful consequences of sexual sin. First and foremost, I think he gave the, ten, or the, the seventh commandment to protect and preserve his special gift of sex from being perverted. I almost thought of titling this sermon, Safeguarding Sex. I chose to go with staying faithful to your marriage vows. But, but that's he, he, what he did. He built a fence around sex called marriage. And as long as sex stays inside the fence, everything is fine. Right? You, you, we all enjoy a fire in the fireplace. Um, it provides warmth. It provides heat. It's enjoyable. It brings pleasure into your home. But if that fire gets out of your fireplace, guess what? It could destroy your entire house, right? I think God also gave the seventh commandment because he wanted to keep us from getting burned. He loves us. Again, what are we saying these laws for life are? They're they're timeless truths to guide and to guard us on our journey through life. He wants to guard us from getting burned. Just like a good parent, hey, 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 don't go near that stove. We say that to our little, it's like, hey, let's, okay, let's see how, let's see what happens. Go ahead, go over there and touch that. Let's see how that happens. No, you, you're doing everything you can to protect them, to guard them. Uh, I'll never forget that the, the day we were at a, a backyard barbecue in California and, and, and Hannah was just little. I don't even remember how old she was, but she just had her little blankie and her little thumb and she was just kind of toddling around the back patio by the pool and she stumbled and she fell into the barbecue pit and, and, and it burned the big old boil on the back of her hand. And I'll never forget just picking her up and trying to console her and walking her up and down the street to get her to stop crying because it hurt so bad. And we were putting all this stuff on it and trying to comfort her. And she even today has still has a scar on the back of her hand because of that. No parent would wish that on their kid, right? We would do everything we could to protect our kid from that. And so this is God here with the seventh commandment. And so throughout his word, he, he backs up this simple command to not commit adultery with severe warnings of what will happen to a person who's foolish enough to break this commandment. I can't think of any better portion of God's word that has more warnings against the sin of adultery than the book of Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs with me for a moment. And I think this is interesting, and, and uh, you know that this book, 
written mostly by Solomon uh, as uh, a father to his son. Uh, My son, listen to me. Um, Let me share wisdom with you that will serve you well in life, that will keep you from going down wrong paths and getting hurt. And and, uh, let me teach you how to live wisely. Well, of all the warnings um, against sin particular sins in the book of Proverbs, that there's more warnings against the sin of adultery than any other sin. That was like the number one thing. Survey says, son, number one thing you're going to have to guard against is adultery. Listen just to some of these passages, and you can read them with me. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16. He's talking about this pursuit of wisdom, which will deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. This this strange woman, this adulteress uh, person that he's referring to, this father's referring to, I think is just generally representative of sexual morality. Just, just immorality or adultery in general. And it's in, in, in pers- embodied, if you will, or personified in this strange woman, this adulteress. Verse 7, Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house or you will give vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. I've not listened to the voice of my teachers now in, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. And then notice the, the, uh, the positive side of this. What's the, what's the positive uh, perspective to have on, on, on uh, sexual activity? Notice verse 15, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. What's the point? The best... Defense is a good offense. In other words, have a uh, cultivate an, an intimate relationship with your spouse, and that will help resist the temptations that come from the world around you. Look at chapter six, 
Moving on here, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23. He says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life, to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's hungry. But when he's found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. In other, in other words, you're stupid. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. That's what Chuck Swindoll was referring to, that you can be forgiven and you can be restored to fellowship, but that's something that you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied through though you give him many gifts. In other words, you can be reconciled with all the people you need to be reconciled with, but there's going to be a, a difficult relationship there uh, that, that, that is going to, uh, no amount of gifts and, and time will, will, will satisfy. Shall we go on? Verse, chapter 7, verse 1, My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live in my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call uh, understanding your intimate friend that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. And then here is, I think, one of the most um, vivid imageries of, of, of sexual immorality or adultery anywhere in the Scriptures. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. In other words, this dummy went down the wrong street at the wrong time, and he knew it. He knew exactly where he was going. And, and he, he made provision for his flesh. And here she comes. She's boisterous, rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I've paid my vows. Therefore, I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly. And I've found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bread with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. I mean, she's putting the full, pork, full court press on this guy. And then notice how wicked this is. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him, and at the full moon he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. In other words, this guy got caught in a trap and got killed. 
Just like an animal. A dumb animal walking into a trap and who, who, who ends up getting killed. Now therefore, here's the conclusion. Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Are you getting this, guys? Is what he's saying. Don't miss this. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. You know what that means? It's likely that you're going to be a statistic. Because it's happened to a lot of guys. And a lot of gals. Don't think I would never do that. No, the odds are you will, based on this. For the many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way of Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Just a couple more, not as lengthy, later on in the book, Proverbs chapter 22, the dad returns to the same subject. Proverbs 22, verse 14 the mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He is cursed. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. And then chapter 23, verse 26. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit, an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. We're going to come back to that, that verse, verse 26, that concept. Give me your what? Heart, my son, and let your what? Eyes delight in my ways. There's some help there. There's some counsel there. There's some application there of how we can avoid uh, adultery uh, in, that, in that verse. Well, no discussion regarding adultery would be complete without looking at what Jesus had to say about adultery. Look at Matthew chapter 5. This is familiar territory, I'm sure. Uh, this is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus was basically ramping up the law, and he would say, you have heard it said this, but I say this. You have heard it said this, but I say this. And so he comes to the issue of adultery. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. What was he quoting there, by the way? Seventh commandment, Exodus 20, verse 14. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here's Jesus elaborating on the, the, the full meaning of the seventh commandment. And he wasn't, he, what he's saying here, what, we're, what we can learn from Jesus here, and, and Jesus is God, right? So if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. Well, God was not just concerned with the outward act of adultery, but the inward thoughts that lead to adultery. And we know from what Jesus said elsewhere that all sin starts where? In the heart or the mind, the heart-mind, the, the inner man, um, Matthew 15, we're right there in the neighborhood. Look at what he said, Matthew 15, verse 19. Matthew 15, verse 19, he said, For out of the heart 
come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, and fornications. So where does adultery stem from? Where does fornication stem from? It stems from the heart. It stems from the mind. Which is fed primarily through what? The eyes. And that's why it's critical that we guard what we look at. Job 31.1, Job said that he made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. That's, by the way, where the internet um, protection service covenant eyes came from. Job 31.1. Psalm 101, verse 3, the psalmist said, I will put no unclean thing before my eyes. Had a preacher years ago tell all of us young people who are listening to write that verse, Psalm 101, verse 3, I will set no unclean thing before my eyes. Write it out on a, a little postcard or a little index card and tape it to the top of your television. Just to remind you. Right? Hey, I'm not going to set any unclean thing before my eyes, or, or I'm not going to, uh, maybe that needs to be on your monitor, your computer monitor. A verse I came across a, a number of years ago that was incredibly convicting was a description of false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14 Peter is is railing on these false teachers and describing them. And he says that um, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. There are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. And then verse 14, this is 2 Peter 2.14, having eyes full of adultery, they never cease from sin. I mean, we do not want to have that description of us, that we would be described as those having eyes full of adultery. In other words, you have a wandering eye. That's a description of a false teacher. And then, of course, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, we know that uh, we're, we're told to avoid the things uh, in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the, what? Eyes. So this is the point. Look up. Okay? Lustful looks lead to lustful thoughts, which lead to lustful acts. Lustful looks lead to lustful thoughts, which lead to lustful acts. And so we need to train our eyes to not lust and and, and discipline our minds to not dwell on sexual things. Martin Luther made this crack, but I think appreciate his candor in it. He says, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. The whole point is you can't help but be driving down the road and see this big old billboard that shows you something you don't want to see. You weren't even looking for it, and it's just like next thing you know, you're staring or you're sitting there watching TV and some image comes on in a commercial that you weren't ready for, and you can't help but be exposed to this kind of stuff in the, in the day and age in which we live, but you can, keep, you can keep them from building a nest in your head, right? And so the key to avoiding adultery is to stop it at its source, 
Instead of saying, hey, don't, don't, don't be an adulterer, don't commit adultery, well, let's go back and say, where does this stuff come from to begin with? Let's go back to the root issue. Adultery is just a symptom uh, on, a, on a tree. It's an apple on a tree. Let's go back down to the root and find out where that came from. It's those lustful looks that led to lustful thoughts that led to a lustful act. I read a, a story at one time I've never forgotten. It's called The Keeper of the Spring. You may have heard this story. The keeper of the spring was a quiet forest dweller who lived high above an Austrian village along the western slopes of the Alps. The old gentleman had been hired many years ago by a young town council to clear away the debris from the pools of water up in the mountain crevices that fed the lovely spring flowing through their town. With faithful, silent regularity, he patrolled the hills, removed the leaves and branches, and wiped away the silt that would otherwise choke and contaminate the fresh flow of water. By and by, the village became a popular attraction for vacationers. Graceful swans floated along the crystal clear spring. The mill wheels of various businesses located near the water turned day and night. Farmlands were naturally irrigated, and the view from restaurants was picturesque beyond description. Years passed, and one evening the town council met for its semi-annual meeting, and they reviewed the budget. One man's eye caught the salary figure being paid the obscure keeper of the spring. Said the keeper of the purse, who is this old man? Why do we keep him on year after year? No one ever even sees this guy. For all we know, this strange ranger of the hill is doing us no good. He isn't necessary any longer, and so by unanimous vote, they dispense with the old man's services. For several weeks, nothing changed. By early autumn, the trees began to shed their leaves. Small branches snapped off and fell into the pools, hindering the rushing flow of sparkling water. One afternoon, someone noticed a slight yellowish-brown tint in the spring. A couple days later, the water was much darker. Within another week, a slimy filled covered sections of the water along with the banks, and a foul odor was soon detected. The wheel, mill wheels moved slower, and some finally ground to a halt. Swans left, as did the tourists. Clammy fingers of disease and sickness reached deeply into the village. Quickly, the embarrassed council called a special meeting. Realizing their gross error in judgment, they hired back the old keeper of the spring. And with just a, within just a few weeks, the veritable river of life began to clear up. The wheels started to turn, and new life returned to the hamlet in the Alps once again. That's what God calls all of us to be in our own hearts. We need to be the keeper of the spring, the one who keeps clean our hearts. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. I'll give you a little homework assignment. Uh, some of you may have never even heard of this guy, Steve Green. Okay, I'm dating myself here. I used to love to listen to Steve Green music. I know some of you have as well. You're nodding your heads. I'm sure you can find this on YouTube. I didn't even check, but I'm sure you can find it. Look up Steve Green's song, Guard Your Heart. Powerful, powerful song about how to avoid adultery. And it all starts with guarding your heart. So that's your homework assignment. Look it up, listen to it, and uh, pray over it. Now we're still in Matthew 5, and I didn't finish reading what Jesus had to say here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 
And notice what he goes on to say. He just said, hey, you've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so, if you're right, what? I makes you stumble, what are you supposed to do? Tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I mean, Jesus is taking this adultery thing very seriously. Uh, And he demands that we take it very seriously and that we take extreme precautions to guard against it. Now, literally, he's not saying that, you know, we should all be walking around with a patch over one eye because we gouged out our eye. Like, oh, that guy must have had a problem with lust because he's got the patch on his eye. You know, he he gouged that. Listen, we'd all have patches on our eyes. We all look like a bunch of pirates walking around. That, that, he's not talking about literally gouging your eye. He's just saying take, basically he goes on to talk about if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Is he saying literally cut your hand off? No, just but take radical steps to remove sin from your life. And if you're not willing to do that, notice he threatens hell. You're like, whoa, are you saying if I commit adultery, I'm going to hell? No, not necessarily. But if that's the pattern of your life, and you're not doing anything about it, that may be an indication that you're not a true believer. And so he, he threatens them with, this is, this is heaven and hell are on the line here with your purity. And then he leads into this discussion on divorce. Verse 31, notice it is said, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit what? Adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus picks up this theme in Matthew 19. Turn over there. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And that was the the mindset in that day. Hey, if she burns the toast, she's out of here. And it's okay. Just give her a certificate and be done with her. And so Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, and here he quotes, God In the Garden of Eden, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he goes back to the original wedding ceremony in the Garden of Eden and repeats that and says, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man, what? Separate. They then said to him, well, why why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. In other words, that wasn't a good thing. That was evidence of your hard hearts, hard-heartedness. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. In other words, that's not what the original intent of marriage was. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. 
Now, I recognize that the subject of divorce and remarriage is one of the most complicated subjects in the scriptures. But let me just try to, to simplify it and, and just really summarize what, what I believe the Bible teaches about divorce. I guess the first the place to start is, is that God hates divorce. That's what Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 says. He never intended any marriage to end in divorce. His ideal for marriage is one man, one woman married for life. That's the implication of what Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. In other words, don't think just because you're, you know, your husband died, you know, basically a widow or a widower you can't get remarried. Oh, you're committing adultery because God only intended you to have one wife in a lifetime. Paul says, no, that's not what God intended. His point was, till death do you what? Part. That's where that line came in the classic wedding ceremony, till death do you part, it comes from Romans chapter 7. Well, having said that, it's clear that God graciously allows for divorce in situations where one's partner has been unfaithful to them. Um, remember from the Old Testament, we read this already earlier, that when someone committed adultery, what happened to them? They were killed. Which freed the faithful partner to remarry. Because the New Testament principle is, till death do you part. And if your spouse got killed because they were an adulterer, Guess what? You're free to remarry. And so the, 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 I think this is the concept that we need to follow. I think the same principle applies today in the case of adultery or abandonment in that it's as if the unfaithful partner is dead. They, we don't literally kill people anymore for that. But in, in God's mind, that's what happens. When you're unfaithful, when you commit adultery, it's like you died. I'm assuming you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 7. I've not read that, but just so we're clear, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says this in verse 10, but to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they're holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, i.e. abandons the relationship, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, if you find yourself married to an unbeliever, 
and they're willing to live with you, then you stick it out. Because God could use you to win that person to Christ and win your children to Christ. And there's a sanctifying influence in that home that you don't want to take off that home. But if that guy or that gal says, you know what, I'm sick and tired of your Christianity and your faith in Christ, I'm out of here, and abandons the relationship, I think there's a freedom. It's as if that, that, that person is being unfaithful, maybe not for the purpose of unchastity or impurity or adultery, but they're abandoning you. And so in these cases, I don't believe that God commands divorce or requires divorce, but he mercifully permits it when one partner has been unfaithful to their marriage vows. And in that case, remarriage is not forbidden for the faithful, innocent party. And yet, Jesus made it very clear, if anyone gets divorced and remarried for any other reason than adultery or abandonment, they're committing what? What are they committing? Adultery. Because in God's eyes, they're still married. They didn't have biblical grounds for that divorce. Their divorce was illegitimate. And that's why whenever I'm asked to, uh, to marry a couple, uh, and I don't necessarily know them, uh, my first question is, I, I got to ask this, is this your first marriage? And if they say, well, no, I've been married before, I say, well, tell me the details about your first marriage and, and the reason why you're divorced. And, and what I'm trying to assess is whether or not they had biblical grounds and that they are truly a candidate for remarriage. They're, they're remarriable. Otherwise, I would be an accomplice to adultery. And I don't want to be that. I want to try to be faithful to the Scriptures. And in my opinion, divorce should be a last resort response to a hard-hearted, unrepentant pattern of adultery. We have the book of Hosea. What a glorious example of God's faithfulness to, to us when we're unfaithful. And I think that's the spiritual high road, that even if your spouse has been unfaithful to you, it's not like, oh, I got my get out of this marriage free card, I'm out of here. I think you should commit to working on that thing and, and, and demonstrating the, the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's demonstrated in your life and be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. But again, if that continues as a pattern in, that, in your spouse's life where they just continually say, you know what, I don't care, I'm going to continue to cheat on you, I'm going to continue to do what I want to do. And this is kind of a un hard-hearted, unrepentant pattern. At that point, I think God, again, has mercy on the faithful partner. And you're free to go. I've never counseled someone, to my knowledge, to get a divorce. But I have told people, based on your situation, we as a church would not pursue you in church discipline for divorcing your spouse. In other words, we feel like you have biblical grounds for divorce. We're not going to encourage that because we're always encouraging restoration, reconciliation. That's our emphasis, right? Reconciliation is God's best. And it's been my privilege to watch God restore a number of marriages that were ravished by unfaithfulness when couples, rather than just throwing in the towel, calling it quits, saying, I'm out of here, 
they mutually committed to rebuilding their marriage with God's help according to the principles of God's word. We've got a couple uh, who just recently joined our church and, and, uh, and, and I, I, I crack up every time they say this, but they, they, they introduce themselves to people and they, they, they just kind of start sharing their testimony and they just say, well, you know, our divorce didn't work out. And they had been married for some 30, 40 years and then they hit a crisis in their lives. And, and, and at that point, they both admittedly got out of that relationship sinfully. It wasn't, there was no really biblical grounds at all for that, but they both responded selfishly and sinfully at that moment in that crisis. And then years later, they recognized, what did we do? We, we were wrong. We've got no grounds for divorce. We need to work on reconciling our marriage. And so I had the privilege of sitting with, with, with uh, this couple who, who could very easily have been grandparents, <laughs> um, but who wanted to be restored in their marriage. And it's a beautiful thing to see God put a marriage back together again. And so now they walk around and say, our divorce didn't work out. <laughs> I love it. Countercultural. Now listen, I realize this is a very sensitive subject because some of you are sitting here tonight and whenever this subject comes up, you feel guilty because maybe you committed adultery at some point in your past. Maybe you've gotten divorced for unbiblical reasons or, or you married someone who wasn't rightly divorced in God's eyes and in that way you committed adultery. You may be married, biblically married right now, but you're cheating on your spouse. You may be in the middle of an affair right now or maybe even being tempted by that. Can I give you hope? John chapter 8. John chapter 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Love this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. I mean, we're talking, she was caught in the act. Grab her out of the bed and drag her with the sheets around her, throw her at the foot of Jesus. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his, and with his finger wrote on the ground. Everybody tries to explain, well, this is what that means. I have no clue what he wrote in the ground. But when they per uh, persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. So Jesus is like, hey, whoever has no sin, have at it. Stoner, let's go. Bring it. And the older men in the crowd at least had the maturity to realize, you know what? Who am I to judge her? I got plenty of sin in my life and I'm not about to stand around before he starts pointing out my sin. <laughs> that could have been what he was writing in the ground is their sins. And they're like, we're getting out of here, man. <laughs> and so they took off and so there's Jesus left 
with the woman all alone, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? He's like, hey, where are your accusers? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Listen, hopefully you are not feeling any condemnation from me or from God's word this evening. I want you to walk away with, hey, I don't condemn you either. But go and sin no more. In other words, go and repent. Make things right. Leave your life of sin behind. And true repentance is, is demonstrated by forsaking your sin, acknowledging your sin, and, 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 and knowing that it's washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and, and claiming that forgiveness, and there's no need for you to feel guilty about it. If you've admitted it, you've done everything you can to correct it, to make it right, then move on. Move on. And if I could just return to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, to that church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor who? Adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You're like, whoa, I'm in that list. Does that mean I'm going to hell? Notice verse 11, but such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Listen, you have no idea the type of sin that has been committed in the lives of people or people in our church have committed in in their lives. And not just in the way past, but maybe in recent years, recent months, recent days. You have no idea. But guess what? They're washed. They're sanctified. And you're justified. The point is, we can't sit around being judgmental and critical of one another because we all have sin in our lives. And that's in no way to justify and say, oh, well, don't worry about it. We're all sinners, and so let's just you know, keep struggling in our sin. No, the point is, when you repent of your sin, you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. With his help, you can rebuild your life and, and rebuild your marriage on the right foundation. We've all heard it said that, that, well, you know, the key to a good relationship, a good marriage is trust. You've heard that. You may have said that. I've said that. You know, that marriage is based on trust. Well, can you point to a verse in the Bible that says that? My Bible says that marriage is based on Christ. And even when a marriage has been completely obliterated by adultery, and there is no trust, trust is gone. The only thing that's left standing is that hurricane came through, the tornado ripped through your marriage, and the only thing left is a foundation. If the foundation is Christ, you have all you need to rebuild that marriage. 
Because you build on Christ, not on trust. And over time, Christ will help you rebuild that trust. I hope this has been an encouragement to your heart. And as I said in that email this morning, a providential preview to our Art of Marriage event this weekend. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just your sweet providence and bringing us to that specific command tonight to look at thou shalt not commit adultery. And Lord, it really prepares our hearts for what you have in store for us this Friday and Saturday together as we contemplate biblical principles for marriage. And Lord, I pray for any marriage here that's struggling, uh, who's maybe uh, any individual or couple who's been impacted by the consequences of adultery, Lord, that you would just continue to be gracious to them and help them be restored, um, Lord, not to live in guilt, Lord, but, but to, to embrace the forgiveness that they have in Christ. And um, when, when that lack of trust maybe rears its ugly head and, and they struggle again and they maybe squabble again because of things that have happened in the past, that they would, again, just be kind and tenderhearted and forgive one another just as, as you've forgiven them uh, in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that while we are all wretched sinners and while we may have not committed adultery, Lord, we're all adulterers in our heart. We're thankful that you have washed us and you've cleansed us and that you're in, in the process of sanctifying us, Lord, and you've made us right with you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we claim that victory in Christ tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.